the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. A look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate, or even someone to get saved, or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts, and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next, next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God, and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think providing answers and being able to direct a conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe that is also loving the person and so uh yeah it, it's all relational i think i mean ultimately god is love i mean love i've got a chapter on that that love is the meaning of life i mean that's what it's all about and so yeah we, we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, at a church somewhere or um, you know, just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, that most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases, uh, I think, have been hurt by the Church or someone in the Church. There's, there's an amazing number uh, of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that, it, I think it, it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that were teaching some pretty weird things, and so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak, 
um, in in rejecting something that is admittedly sort of silly, they just reject the whole thing. So yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly I think would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out, it's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're they're going to be looking at us. And they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at, at the, the core initially— hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present our case? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need, there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. Let's um, hop on to the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for a relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress, when he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God, and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live 
contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good about. news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with a, uh, an atheist who's certain <laughs> that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly, in the 1960s and 70s, educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, uh, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does, that, does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen, uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life overnight. And so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there? That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we, we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have. And really, I mean, that's, I mean, I get that, I understand that. But yeah, real life, doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people. You're you're talking to them over time, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even or your or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. The book How to Talk to a Skeptic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest. The book is called How to Talk to 
a skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with with the the hardline, almost professional skeptics. Uh, Donald, uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of a, a Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated, or some of the arguments that they put forward, and I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right. I don't think they do a terribly good job of it, and and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And, and that's one key, I think, to talking to, to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle, is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it, probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian. We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making a case for the existence of God? Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor. Because if it's true, it's true. And Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know. The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And, and I think that's one key to having a good conversation is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket, and I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Yeah, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of, of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's the key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge. And so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. 
But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well, I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, what I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's, let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview, but I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that, are, uh, they, that come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a, a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that, that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What about those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've, I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity, and uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one, and I think on one hand you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, say you well, agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know, we're all sinners, we're all hypocritical at some point, uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect and that, you know, if, if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners saved by grace and and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how, that's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and, and see if, if his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian 
uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or uh, you know be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and He has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what He's done in our life? and how we can change somebody else's life, too. While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people, when it comes to the matter of of sharing their faith or evangelism, get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same, written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, Wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, Are very common questions to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great. But when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life. And, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer we asked a thousand christians you know what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-christian and these are the top 10 questions that came up so let's get ready because if we feel ready then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, did there seem to be a commonality 
um, over intimidation by some of these questions. And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, And then to maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in, in, in speaking to some of these questions. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think, uh, again, I think sometimes as churches we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they they really took to it because they they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in in how should I phrase this, a debate really over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it, it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. And I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, my my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Let's be honest. We need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends 
how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well, and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not, Not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here. But uh, the, the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him. You know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God, it's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's, it's thequestionswithanswers.com. TheQuestionsWithAnswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch Him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch Him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Well, it's a great question, and the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, As a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about, you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even, even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin, that is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real. But if you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but I, you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. And I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is Virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory. 
finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that, that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point. And scientists believe this. And, and I do too, and I think Genesis 1-1 describes it. But they, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning, but then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this who created it. One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, it's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes. How or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it. And they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc., and I agree with that. I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So what? What? first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious, what are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced. Because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea. And you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart, it speaks to your deepest needs. But now some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two, that's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. When we run into those kind of, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and I, this is what I talk about in the chapter, in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a 1,000 pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. 
you said there was a thousand, and you're right too. But in reality, there's a lot more than a thousand because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible, one gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.